So pray with me. Father God, we, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you. We can gather together with family, friends, loved ones, others who really want to follow you. And uh, we just confess, God, we don't get that right. There's so many times when we, we go our way and do the things we want to do and we don't represent you well, love you well, let alone love others well. But Father, these are the times that remind us and galvanize us and inspire us and encourage us to go to deeper places of faith and trust. And so we would ask that as even we prepare ourselves to come to this table in a little bit, we ask that you would speak to us and teach us and guide us and challenge us. All of this, we ask in the name that has no equal, has no rival. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen? Well, we're continuing in our series uh, that's been talking about the problem of uncertainty. Every human being lives with the problem of uncertainty. Uh, it's hard to be certain about very many things in life. This morning, the question that we're uh, taking up is a profoundly important question, one that has great implications for a person who does have faith in Jesus Christ, for a person who does want to follow Jesus. And the question is this, why should I believe the Bible? Why should I? I mean, is the Bible even trustworthy? Aren't there things in the Bible that are just wrong, that are just inaccurate, that are just culturally barbaric things and attitudes that, you know, we've moved past a long time ago. So why would we ever want to go back to thinking and acting uh, based upon things that are said in the Bible? That's a barbaric, mostly archaic way to live, some would say. Uh, attitudes towards slavery, attitude towards women, attitudes towards gender issues, sexual orientation. Uh, not only that, isn't the Bible full of religious legends and myth? Uh, all questions that are out there today being asked, good questions, I would say. Uh, all questions that if answered in the, affirmative, in the affirmative would certainly mean that we should not be listening to taking seriously what the Bible says. We should not put our trust in what the Bible says. We uh, should not accept it as authoritative in our lives. Inspiring, uplifting, interesting, ancient literature, maybe, but not an inspired, inerrant revelation of God to us. So how do we respond to these kinds of questions? Well, um, as you might imagine, I want to try and make the case that that uh, we can and we should trust what the Bible says to us. We can trust it historically. Uh, we can trust it culturally. And we can trust it personally in terms of how it speaks into our lives at a personal level. And this morning, I'm going to take just the first one of those three, this thing of historicity, historically, and talk about the fact that we can trust the Bible historically. So that's what we're going to do. Anyone doesn't want to hear that? Now's the time. Get up and go. Okay? So here we go. Before we, before we answer that question, there's, there's one little uh, rabbit trail I want to go down with you. Uh, and that would be this. Why does this question even matter? Can we trust the Bible historically? Why, why does this question even matter? And I would say that it matters a great deal because here's the thing. We believe that Jesus is the only way for a human being to experience lasting, in fact, eternal transformation. That's what we believe. That's the big answer to the question why we do anything around here. We believe that Jesus is right about everything. We said that last week. 
He's right about everything. We believe that Jesus is the unique son of God, the second person of this thing we call the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe that Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life. Another way of summarizing all that is to say, we believe that Jesus is it. There's a lot of it's that we look for in life. When you get my age, some of the it's that people look for are cars. I'm gonna get a really nice car. I'm gonna get a, I'm gonna live in the house I wanna live in. I'm gonna retire and do only what I want to do. Yeah. That would be it. Then I would be happy. Well, fact of the matter is, we believe that Jesus is it. None of those other things are gonna satisfy your soul. They're not going to give you the meaning or the purpose you were meant to have. Jesus is in fact it. Now, why do we believe that? Well, obviously we believe it because of what we read in the Bible. And so that's the big kicker right there. You see, it's because of the Old Testament books that we read that speak prophetically towards the coming of this one, this Messiah named Jesus. We believe it because of the New Testament gospels and epistles that talk about the life of Jesus and what his life and what his death and what his resurrection meant. You see, because of things like what the apostle Paul wrote to a a protege of his, Timothy, young Timothy, he made a very powerful declaration. He wrote these words, words that are familiar to many or most of you. He says, all scripture, meaning the Old Testament and the New Testament that was being written at that time, he says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Training in righteousness is just other code language for becoming like Jesus. You want to know how to become like Jesus? The scriptures are essential, he says, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, the kinds of work that Jesus did and calls us to do. This is a remarkable declaration that's either true or it is so badly um, misguided and mistaken that we should pay no attention to it whatsoever. You understand, and I'm sure you're familiar with some of the documentaries, some of the shows, some of the arguments that are out there that people make today. The argument, namely, that the Bible, especially the New Testament books and epistles and letters that talk about Jesus, uh, his life, what he said, what he did. And so these books were just concocted by politicians and powerful people in the church uh, who were trying to consolidate power and hold it for themselves in the early centuries of church history you know, 150 to 350 in that AD, in that period of time. And the argument kind of goes like this, that those individuals, those powerful politicians and church uh, officials actually wrote and accepted only the books that backed the opinions that, that put them in power and helped to keep them there. So they would reject anything that they did not think would help them to hold that power and occupy that position in that society at that time. So therefore, when it comes to knowing the real Jesus, they would say, who knows what Jesus really did? Who knows what Jesus really said? All the accounts of his miracles, his teachings, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his claim to be divine, those things were all just made up. They are not historically accurate. That's kind of how that argument runs. And so the point is, we really don't know the historical Jesus. We don't really know the things that Jesus himself taught because they've been corrupted. They've been polluted. These church leaders have cleaned all that up, suppressed what they didn't like and made up the stories that they wanted to, to make Jesus who they wanted him to be. And they did all of this from around 150 to 250 or 350 AD in that period of time. That's the argument. 
So the question is, how do we respond to claims of that nature? That was your question, right? Yes. Okay. So for starters, what we do is we say, that argument is just wrong. <laughs> it's just really wrong. It's, a, it's, it's not historically accurate. Now, I'm going to give you three reasons why you can trust the Bible and what it says about Jesus. This would be uh, discussing the historicity of the Bible. Three reasons. Okay? Here we go. Reason number one. All the New Testament books and letters were written too early to be just legends or myth, myths that some individuals made up. Um, take the account of Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 4. Let me just read it for you. This is the way the uh, writer Luke starts his gospel. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty, there's that interesting word that we've kicked around a bunch of times with regards to a bunch of things, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke says that he himself has carefully investigated everything from the beginning. He's talked to eyewitnesses, he says. And what Luke is saying is that even though he's writing about 30 or 40 years after the events actually happened, the events in the life of Jesus, there are still lots of eyewitnesses around that are capable of verifying one way or the other whether the information that he presents is accurate. And so the idea is go check with them. Find some of these eyewitnesses. See if what I write isn't accurate or true or well investigated. Verify the story. You can if you wish. That's his point. Another major author of New Testament letters is, of course, the Apostle Paul. Most of the epistles in the New Testament were written by Paul. And Paul wrote some of the, the letters that were even, some of his letters were written even closer to the time of Jesus than the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Paul says things like this in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I'm going to do something that, you know, it's not usually advised. I'm going to read a section of scripture. It's on the screen. It's kind of a long section, but it's an important section. So that's why we're reading it. And if you've got your Bible, you can open to it or you can follow on the screen. Paul writes these words. He says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. This is the message that I told you about, he says, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. In other words, their life depends on it. And, you know, here's the funny thing. None of our lives really depend upon it. But back when this letter was written, some of their lives did. Because if they took a stand on it, it meant they were going to pay a very great price economically, socially, maybe even literally with their lives, upon which you have received, you've received and which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved, he claims, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And then he says, for what I received, I passed on. So he got it, he received it. Where did Paul receive it from? Come on, people, we're in church. There's only one good answer. There you go, Jesus. Yeah, he got it from Jesus. Remember, Jesus appeared to him, yeah. Always the safest answer. I mean, even if you're wrong, you just said Jesus, you know, anyway. <laughs> for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. Now he's going to rehearse what the message is according to the scriptures. That's an interesting statement. Paul is making the claim that the life and the events in Jesus' life, all of that, everything that unfolded happened according to scripture. What scripture is he talking about? 
Old Testament, yeah. So uh, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter. There's that phrase again, according to the scriptures. He's emphasizing that. None of this happened randomly. It all happened according to the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. There again, eyewitnesses, go check it out. He's saying, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, they've died. He doesn't mean they're napping like some of you probably are, but that's not what he's talking about. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul, you know, had this event that happened between him and Jesus. And Jesus communicated all kinds of truth to Paul, both in that encounter, and then we assume also just uh, kind of uh, the Holy Spirit speaking to and guiding Paul. A little later on in this same chapter, in chapter 15, he goes on to say this. But if it is preached, because some were doing this, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, which is what Paul preached, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? How can you say that? That's not our message. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, meaning there's nobody who can change you. There is nobody who can transform you. There is nobody who could get you out of this, this cesspool of sin that owns you, that occupies territory in your heart, that pollutes your relationships. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then there is no power to address our greatest problem of sin and death. But he has been raised from the dead. We're not still in our sins. He says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost if there is no resurrection. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. I mean, if we're making this up, if we're meeting, we're wasting our Sunday morning, folks. We could be out there enjoying the weather, enjoying the beauty. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, that's Paul's point. If only for this life, again, we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he says. So Paul's making an argument for the gospel, for the events of Jesus' life. He makes the claim that all of it has happened and all of it has unfolded according to the scriptures. The scriptures really matter. Jesus was the fulfillment of all those Old Testament scriptures. Paul makes the claim again that, that there are many, many witnesses to this thing of the resurrection of Jesus. It's not some backroom kind of occurrence. On one account, he says more than 500 men, uh, all of them, or most of them, he says, not all of them, most of them still alive. So go talk to them if you want to verify the events of the resurrection that we talk about. That's, that's the cornerstone, capstone, if you will, of the gospel. Now understand, Paul could not possibly have written about Jesus' resurrection in a public document referring to over 500 witnesses unless those eyewitnesses actually existed. Otherwise, his claims would have been laughable then, just as they would be today, if he were making claims like that and there were no witnesses to verify the facts. Same then as it is today. Paul does something else in another epistle, another letter that he writes to the church of Philippi. This is in Philippians 2. He actually quotes a whole hymn of praise that had been written earlier. And um, 
Paul writes this letter to the Philippians only about 15 years after Jesus had died, risen from the dead and ascended. So this is very close to the time of Jesus. And in it, he, he cites this hymn. It's praising Jesus' deity. It's praising the fact that Jesus came down from heaven. It's praising the fact that he died on a cross. And then God exalted him, exalted him how? Through the resurrection. So in this hymn that had obviously been written earlier because Paul was quoting it, what, what does this tell us? That there's the presence of a hymn that's been circulating among churches and, and Christians acknowledge this hymn and sing this hymn and, and repeat this hymn together. Well, what it tells us is that from the very earliest days following the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus' followers simply believed that he was God from the earliest days. They believed that he had come down from heaven. They believed that he was God living among us. They believed that he performed many convincing proofs slash miracles. They believed that he died on the cross and that he was exalted by the Father in this thing called the resurrection. And all of this was believed. It was written about. It was being circulated when eyewitnesses were still around. Verifiable eyewitnesses. And so the notion made popular today that there are certain, and this is through certain books and certain documentaries, you can also see them on YouTube, that the church had this huge conspiracy going on, that it suppressed all kinds of documents that tell us the real truth about Jesus, that he was married, that he never made a claim to divinity and things of that nature, that, uh, that the church itself, these, these individuals, some 150 or so years after the, the time of Jesus, uh, wrote the books of the New Testament, making things up, filling them with legends, filling them with miracles, filling them with stories about Jesus so that we would believe the things about Jesus that help them have power. This idea that all of this uh, was done to help establish the church as a political power in that Roman political arena of that time. And then there's one more interesting piece to this, uh, this argument. The idea was that in 325 AD, uh, Emperor Constantine, how many of you have heard of Emperor Constantine? Good, this is a history lesson. You know, Emperor Constantine called a, a, a council of the church, and uh, the, the, the claim is made that it was Emperor Constantine who decreed in 325 AD that Jesus was, in fact, God, and that that idea had mostly not existed prior to that time. That idea is just simply not true. It's just historically wrong based upon everything I was just sharing with you, that not many years after the life, the death of Jesus, you have hymns being written celebrating his deity, celebrating his majesty. You have accounts of Thomas worshiping Jesus after the resurrection. So the point is, the New Testament documents themselves were written too early for such a theory to be plausible. One uh, historian writes this and says, the idea that Emperor Constantine declared Jesus to be divine and that Christianity won the religious competition in the Roman Empire by an exercise of power or a conspiracy uh, rather than by an attraction that it exerted is not credible. In other words, he's saying that, you know, the, the church lived, tried to live, they did it imperfectly, tried to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, and that was the convincing proof of the message of the church, of the message of the gospel. He says, in actual historical fact, the church had won that competition that is with other faiths, other religions, chiefly the, the Roman pantheon of gods. In actual historical fact, the church had won that competition long before that time, before it had any power, when it was still under sporadic persecution. If an historian were cynical, uh, you would say that Constantine chose Christianity because it had already won and he wanted to back a winner, end quote. Is anybody still with me? Some of you just look glazed over. 
This is a lot of information, but the point is this, because some of you are thinking, what is the point of this? Um, <laughs> the New Testament documents themselves were written way too early for this theory that's become popular today to be plausible. It was written, in fact, at a time when there were lots of eyewitnesses everywhere. And therefore, what these New Testament documents say, essentially, is that Jesus' death and Jesus' teaching and, and his claims to be God and his resurrection, these things really happened. People really testified, really, really bet their life on the truthfulness of these because they were witnesses of these events. And I suppose you could write documents two or 300 years later when all the eyewitnesses were dead and you could say pretty much anything you wanted to about a figure, but you couldn't say that Jesus was crucified. You could not say that Jesus rose from the dead when thousands of people, both pro and con, both for and against the Christian faith were still around and could comment. You see, if Jesus hadn't been crucified, if there hadn't been any post-death resurrection appearances, if the tomb was not empty and all these public documents making all of these claims were being circulated, Christianity would have never gotten off the ground. It would have been too widely recognized as just a big stupid hoax, just like it would today if those events had happened today and there were no eyewitnesses. There were claims, but no eyewitnesses. So first point, the New Testament documents are written too early to be legends. Yes, Boom. Okay, second point. The New Testament documents are too counterproductive in their content to be legends. And I like this one because there's some spinoff, you know, a blessing to us from this. You see, their theory is that the Bible, again, doesn't actually give you the facts. It doesn't really tell us what actually happened. It gives you a version of what church leaders wanted you to believe actually happened. And because this version supposedly helps them to gain and to keep power and to build a movement that they led, and that's an interesting argument. But let's examine it from a different angle. Let's say I'm a church leader. I know it's a stretch, but let's say I am. And I'm living about uh, 150, 200 AD, okay? And uh, I'm making up stories about Jesus. I'm even making up letters that I'm writing to churches like Philippi or Ephesus. I mean, you know, I'm pretending like these letters were written long, long time ago. And I'm trying to paint a picture of Jesus being God because, you know, nobody actually thought that. But I want people to think that. Would I include a Gethsemane story? A story where Jesus is weak and asking the father if there's any way for him to get out of this. Literally what Jesus says is, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Would I put that in the story? I don't think so. Kind of makes him a little weak, does it not? Would I put Jesus on the cross saying things like this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wow, that's so vulnerable, so weak. Would that be a good thing for me to have him say? Does that make him look courageous? Does that make him look like, hey, he's in control. He's divine. He's God. Or how about this? If I want it clear that Jesus is God... Uh, would I make all the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection to be who? Women. You all know the story behind that. You know, in that culture, women are not even considered legal witnesses in a court of law. So why would I make them the first witnesses of the resurrection? That doesn't help my case. And yet Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four writers of the, of the Gospels all say that Jesus' first witnesses to his resurrection were women. If you were making this whole story up, which is the claim, trying to consolidate your power, trying to advance a movement, I don't think you would pick them as witnesses. You would go for people of notoriety. I mean, after all, you're writing 150, 200 years later, right? You could pick almost anybody. 
That would make your case better than the case that's made. And here's something else. You know, we're talking about early church leaders. Uh, these would be the guys only a couple of generations from the, the apostles. So at 150 to 250 or 350 AD, we're talking about church leaders who, who would have been several generations removed from the apostles, right? And, uh, and what we're saying then with this argument that's become popular, uh, why would these guys write documents that make their founding fathers look like morons? Think about this. The apostles are not shining beacons of perfection and solid, right? I mean, one minute they're not believing, and the next minute they are, right? One minute they're afraid of the Pharisees, the next minute they're lopping off ears, uh, one minute they're walking on water, the next minute they're drowning. Uh, one minute they're handing out bread and serving and seeing a miracle, thousands and thousands of people being fed. The next they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom. Uh, one minute they're bragging about never deserting Jesus. And then uh, the very next day they're all deserting him. Peter's denying him three times. Thomas refuses to believe that he's actually raised from the dead until he's able to put his finger in his hand and his hand in his side. It's not pretty. The point is the portrayal of the original followers of Jesus, it's just not flattering. It's not likely that any of that would be in the story if it were being written 150, 250 years later. Why would you make up all these unflattering stories about the apostles? And again, the point is you wouldn't. These stories would never be in the text unless they actually happened because they don't help. Not if you're trying to establish a power base. And so the New Testament documents are, number one, they're written too early to be legends. And number two, they're too counterproductive. Now, I've got one more point I want to make. Are you ready? Because I can see you're all writing this down. Yeah. Uh, these, uh, these letters that we get in the New Testament, they're also too detailed to be mythological or to be legendary. Uh, you'll notice uh, we, uh, we looked earlier at Luke chapter one there, how Luke begins his gospel. Uh, if we had kept reading one more verse, verse five, uh, Luke, after saying, hey, eyewitnesses, I've checked it out. I've got the details here. Uh, he goes on to say, in the time of Herod, king of Judas, uh, uh, Judea, there was uh, a priest named Zechariah and so on. So on. Uh, point is details, 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 details. Legends and myths are not made of details, not of this nature. Historical fiction as a literary form, this thing that we today would call a novel, didn't exist, you understand, back then. It didn't develop until the mid-1600s. Ancient fiction uh, didn't read this way. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor of medieval literature and a literary critic, writes this. He, he's, he's commenting about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is what he writes. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature. No, none of them are like this. He's talking about the Gospels. None of them are like this. Of this Gospel text, there are only two possible views, he says. Either this historical reportage, or it is historical reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic uh, realistic narrative. And the reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. That's what professors always do. They, they kind of set it up, they give you their argument, and then they have a condescending remark at the end. You're a moron if you don't agree with me. That's, that's kind of what he's saying there. But again, here's the point. The gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't have the form of ancient legends. They're written too early after Jesus' death to be legends. 
And they are too counterproductive in many of the stories that they tell us to be legends. And so therefore, let me ask you, what do you make of them? What do you make of the gospel stories? What do you make of the epistles and the letters that Paul and Peter and John and James and Jude? What do you make of them? You know what? I believe them. I really do. I, I believe them. I trust them. I'm betting my life on them. I think they actually tell me exactly what happened. I think that. What do you think? Here's the real kicker. Because I think that, I read it. Well, you knew he was going to go there, didn't you? I mean, I do. I read it. And I would ask you, do you? And you could say, well, you're paid to read it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I have to get up and say something every week. It's best if it has some correlation to the Bible. Um, But you know, a lot of what I read on day to day to day um, in the course of a week has nothing to do with what I say up here. It has more to do with just knowing him, wanting to know him, knowing I need to know him. That's what a lot of what I read is about. And I don't ask that question, you know, what, what, what do you do with the scriptures to make anybody feel guilty? I, man, I know how busy life is. I know how hard it is to carve out time to do anything, let alone get quiet and get serious and get focused and to actually read something. I mean, God knows reading is awful. Right? For some of you, it is. I, I mean, you know, we're all put together differently. Some of us love to read. Some of us don't. Some of us really struggle. I, I get all that. I do. You know, the research tells us that 45% of Christians read their Bibles, and here's the language, at least once a month, meaning not less than once a month. It doesn't say how many times, but not less than once a month. 45% of those who say they follow Jesus read their Bibles not less than once a month. 12% of Christians read their Bibles once a month, meaning not more than once a month. So 12% of those who say, I follow Jesus, pick their Bible up and read it not more than once a month. 9% of Christians uh, indicate that they read the Bible several times a year. 33%, a third of those who say they, they follow Jesus, want to know him, read their Bibles seldom or never. And if that's you, whatever category you fall in, I would just say this. I would say, you know, you're ignoring the only God-inspired, God-revealed source of information about why you've been put here on this planet, about what your purpose is. The only source of information about what God is up to in the world, and believe me, he is up to stuff. Your only source of information about God's only son, Jesus. Your only source of information about his mission, his love, his will, his forgiveness for you, his desire to have a relationship with you. 
And um, I would just encourage you, if you believe what I believe, if you believe that the Bible is God's inspired, inerrant source of revelation of himself to us, it's mostly a book of stories about God relating to people, people exactly like you and me, even the apostles exactly like you and me. If you believe that's what the Bible is, then I would strongly and pastorally urge you to have a plan to read it and to ingest it regularly. If you're in one of those categories where you're in the 33% category and you look at a Bible somewhere between seldom or never, I don't know very well how you can grow. At the very least, you're stunting your growth. It's good that you're here. I mean, it's one of the reasons we gather. There was a time in the church, you understand, when people didn't have copies of the Bible. And they would come together like this and large sections of scripture would be read out loud to them. And the reason they did that was not to put them to sleep. It was that people wanted to hear the word of God and the only place they could get it was at the church that had copies of the scriptures. But as copies began to be made and then the printing press came in to be and people could actually get a copy of scripture, oh, what a, what a great day of dawning that was. You could have your copy of your own Bible. Now we have copies of the Bible that just sit on our tables and what gathers there? Not people, yeah, dust. Dust gathers there. What a cry and shame. You know, sometimes we, we don't know what a jewel, what a treasure we have in our possession until we don't have it. And I would say there's nothing more precious to you or to me than the fact that God has revealed himself to us. And yes, it's in a book. You know, maybe you need to, you, you can't read. Well, then get in your car and pop in a DVD and drive around the block until you've spent some time <laughs> hearing the word of God. Your neighbors will think you're nuts, and you are if you do that. But, but I, I'm just saying, you, you need to get a practice. You need to have a plan. Well, how are you going to ingest the Bible? Don't think you can ingest it with a little program that sends you a single verse to look at each day. I'm not saying that's bad, but that doesn't get it. You're not getting the sweep of the story. This is so important. And I just fear that in Christendom today in North America, not everywhere, but in North America, our, our knowledge of the scriptures and therefore our knowledge, our intimate knowledge of Jesus and experience of Jesus is declining. And that is not a good thing. And if that kind of characterizes where you're at, I, I encourage you, get a plan. You know what I do, and Holly does this as well. Holly's my wife. We, uh, we do the Moravian text. We've been doing this for years now. Uh, you can get it online, www.moraviansomething.org. Uh, I think moraviantext.org might be what it is. And it's just a Bible reading plan. So we read some Old Testament. We read a Psalm every day, and then we read some New Testament every day. And, and, I, and I encourage you, don't get a plan to read the Bible in a year if you're not used to reading the Bible. That will kill you. That's a lot of Bible reading every day. And don't make this a plan to do something in a year for crying out loud. Anybody here expecting to die tomorrow or next month? And that's the thing. You know, we don't know when we're going to die, but none of us are expecting it, right? So my point is, is you got your life, your whole life ahead of you, however long that is. For some of us, it's not that long. For others of you, it's a long time. Uh, so just plan to, to get a practice, to develop a habit that builds and strengthens the muscle of getting to know Jesus through his word. And so it doesn't matter that you're reading vast quantities. Just get a plan and stick with the plan and work the plan. And when the plan gets interrupted, go back to the plan the following day. You get the idea. 
Just develop a, 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 something that gets you communicating and letting God communicate to you through the most powerful tool ever created to change a human heart. And that's the word of God. So that's my soapbox. Somebody's going to say, well, you know what? You basically only talked about the New Testament. What about the old? It's just a sermon, people. I can't talk about everything in one sermon. <laughs> But in a nutshell, let me give you the argument for the Old Testament reliability. <laughs> you thought you were off the hook. Based on what we've already said, we understand that the New Testament is reliable. And the New Testament tells us about Jesus, his life, his teaching, you know, his death, uh, his resurrection, his views of the Old Testament. We know what his views are. And what we learn about Jesus is that Jesus saw the Old Testament as authoritative. He quoted it all the time. He used it in, in his argumentation. He trusted it. He believed it. He argued on the basis of it. So if Jesus viewed the Old Testament as authoritative, maybe we should too. Boom. That's the argument. <laughs> It's just that simple. It's not very complicated. If you can do better than Jesus, good for you. I doubt it. So here we go. The Bible can be trusted historically. That's point number one today. And next week, we're going to come back to point number two and three, and that is that the Bible can be trusted culturally. When it speaks into culture, cultures like ours, and it can also be trusted personally. When it speaks into our lives personally, we're going to take that up next week. Uh, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and we're going to prepare our hearts to come to this table. And you know, here again, the only reason this means anything at all is because we have the scriptures. It's because it tells us what these things represent. Otherwise, what in the world are we doing? You know, this isn't going to make any of us full. But this has great spiritual significance, this sacrament, because of what the scriptures teach us. Pray with me, Father. So dear God, help us. Everybody in this room needs a busy life. Everybody in this room struggles at one time or another with, with uh, reading and listening to you and hearing from you. God, we've all read parts of the Bible before where it didn't feel like we were hearing anything from you. Uh, it, it was a kind of dry experience. But I trust too, God, that all of us have had those times when we're reading scripture and it's like you're right there talking to us, challenging us, encouraging us, speaking to us. And I pray as a church, Father, you, you would do the things in our hearts and our minds, in our schedules that would help us to carve out the time and the space to read and listen to you about you and to you. And I pray, God, that you would meet us in the pages of this book you've inspired. Pray that the truth of and the wisdom of your word would come alive in us. And I pray you would get us beyond what are just tiny little doses of your word, Lord, really enough almost to inoculate us and get us to places of deeper communication, deeper awareness, deeper commitment to engaging you in your word. And now, Father, we thank you that you're gonna meet us at this table. This table, too, reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. He has sacrificed himself, his body broken and 
his blood poured out for us. And we give thanks to you for what's represented here. And we just acknowledge how, how much we need to feast on the work, the body, the ministry of Jesus to us in the cross and in the resurrection. Thank you, Father, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.